You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your your happy host. My guest today is Chelsea Malden, uh, co-founder and executive director of the Public Policy Lab and speaker at the upcoming Civic Design Conference, a virtual conference taking place November 16th through 18th, produced by a company called Rosenfeld Media. Hope you've heard of it by now. Chelsea, welcome to the Rosenfeld Review Podcast. Thanks so much, Lou. Glad to be here. So I want to jump right in to this space of uh, civic design, this intersection of design in the public sector. Now, we've been, we started thinking about uh, putting on this conference close to two years ago. Um, it was an exciting time, certainly in the States. Uh, the, um, we had an election and uh, there were certainly, um, there was certainly a lot of excitement in the States that there was going to be uh, more investment in uh, providing good services through government channels to uh, citizens and other people, at least in the United States. And like everything else, everything has been up and down. Everything has been full of uncertainty. It's, uh, the road seems to be rockier and rockier. And I've been thinking about um, how I should feel as someone not only involved in this space, in this marginal way, at least putting on this conference, but uh, as, a, as a citizen of the U.S., as a consumer of federal delivered services, uh, as a taxpayer. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure how I should be feeling. And I wanted to ask you, as someone who's really in the space, how you're feeling. You know, so my organization is a nonprofit organization that partners with people inside of government to help them use uh, human-centered design methodologies, research methodologies to figure out new ways to both invent policy and deliver public services, which are enabled by policy. So we spend almost all of our time talking to people who reside inside of government and are trying to figure out how to use the, the power of the state to deliver value to Americans. Um, and again and again, my experience has been that those human beings are incredibly hardworking, are incredibly dedicated to trying to do the right thing, are um, genuinely interested in how government can be a, a positive actor in the lives of the people of America. So I think that sometimes there's a, a sort of a cynicism or a dismissal about the intentions or capabilities of public servants, which has just simply not been true in mm -hmm. my experience. Um, and I find that to be the case uh, everywhere from policy folks um, at the top of federal executive agencies and uh, all the way to folks who are frontline staff who are interacting with members of the public. Um, I, I see almost entirely that the people in those roles are, are genuinely committed to trying to do good work for people. So, so I, I, don't, I don't feel despair. I, you're fact, optimistic. I, I have I have a lot of um, I have a lot of respect and regard 
for people who are working inside of government to try to make positive change. Um, even, you know, in the most direct and specific ways, how do we make sure that uh, kids in America have enough food to eat? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that people have someplace decent to sleep, which is not on the streets? You know, the people who are who are interested in those problems, all the way from the top of the policy delivery stack to the folks who are working inside of homeless shelters are are committed to doing good work. And as long as they're committed to doing good work, I don't feel like it's appropriate or reasonable for me to be, uh, to not try to match their commitment, I guess would be the way I put it. You know, I... I so I'm wondering if in, in that are some seeds of a, a better counter narrative to the one I often encounter in the media and even, um, well, let me tell you a story. I was uh, sitting at a cafe uh, here in uh, deep blue Brooklyn, in fact, bluer Park Slope, Brooklyn, even <laughs> even bluer. There is no than, bluer place. There's no, oh, but I was in the South Slope, which is actually the bluest part of Park Slope. In fact, I was sitting at a cafe that our former uh, very left-leaning mayor, Bill de Blasio, still hangs out at. In fact, I've seen mm-hmm. him there so many times I can't count. Anyway, I was wearing the very shirt I'm wearing right now. It's my GovLoop t-shirt. Nice. And some stranger walks by and sees it and just starts this whole tirade, uninvited, <laughs> mm-hmm. about, oh, I don't believe that government is any good, in, in so many words, and, you know, uh, and, and that he felt, you know, that that was like a reasonable person's opinion to offer, mm-hmm. I don't know, to, to, my, to counter my unreasonably worn T-shirt. But that's a narrative that's been around, you know, that government can't deliver that government is, is, needs to be drowned in the bathtub. And I, I just think about your optimistic take, and I'm wondering if you're seeing any level of counter-narrative that's, that's taking hold, that's working, that's successful. Um, sure. Well, it feels to me like um, we have this problem both with the word government and also the word policy, which is there are many possible ways of understanding that word. Like government can mean elected officials, elected politicians. And, you know, in this country, we both elect members of our legislatures, you know, Congress, both houses, state legislatures, city legislatures, you know, it's what's the old old joke about America. Americans elect even the dog catcher. Uh, We have a, a huge number of elected roles. And those folks are politicians and they have both a responsibility to their constituents, but they also have a a personal responsibility often to get themselves reelected. Meanwhile, you have executive agencies, the agencies of government that actually deliver stuff. And that's the Department of Sanitation that comes around and picks up your trash. That's the Department of Transportation that paves the potholes in your street, perhaps not as quickly as you'd like, but they're doing it. You know, like, like there are operational units of government that actually deliver services. So I think that one thing that happens is people don't like disambiguate between when they're talking about government, are they talking about politicians? Or are they talking about public servants operating inside of these, these like functional units of government? Um, same thing with policy. 
Like we talk about how we we apply design to policy. And policy can mean legislation and statute law, like the laws passed by those legis- legislators. It can also mean the rules and regulations that are developed based on those laws. It can also mean the sort of operational systems that emerge inside of executive agencies, which are essentially the the operating systems of different programs, which are nowhere written in law, but nonetheless have to be have to be defined and used to actually deliver on some public policy or public program. So I think part of the problem first is that we we don't have specific enough words. So maybe that guy at your cafe doesn't actually hate having his trash picked up, but he doesn't like his elected representatives. I mean, maybe he hates having his trash picked up, although... Or maybe he doesn't like paying taxes. <laughs> maybe, but, but does he want to pick up his trash? No. Right. I mean, I think that what we do in a representative democracy is we essentially pay taxes and those taxes go to run a whole set of operations, which then individual people don't have to run. You don't have to take your own trash, you know, to the, you know, I remember when I was growing up, we would actually take trash to the dump and have to like pay to have the trash incinerated at the dump. So instead of, instead of doing that thing, you just have the, you know, garbage department, come pick it up for you. Uh, and it's interesting as you're talking about this, it's making me think of um, that that guy and the, there was no we, there was no we in what he said or his, his uh, mien. And um, um, I, I think about working with, let's say authors or, or conference speakers, mm-hmm. and I try to encourage them to get to we very quickly by establishing a, it's a silly formula, I plus U equals we. Who am right. I? Who are you? Together, we are we. And we're on a journey together. And sometimes I feel like that's maybe missing from the mm-hmm. public sector context and maybe because those distances between I and you are just like literally great and tangible. Right. I think there's also a... Um I think there are very different American experiences also. Mm-hmm. I, I also live in the middle of incredibly dense Brooklyn, um, but I have family members. I have a, a, a family member who lives in a town of 500 people in the high desert of Eastern Oregon. And uh, what my expectations are about government regulation of something like building codes like i don't want the building next door to me going up in flames or collapsing or uh having a gas leak or something i want there to be a buildings department that comes and inspects that building because i'm living right next to that building if something bad happens with my neighbor's building i'm totally going to be affected by that but i know for my relative who lives in Oregon, it's a little crazy that anytime somebody builds a thing, you have to get an inspector from 150 miles away to come and do a building inspection mm-hmm. on it. When if that backyard shed collapses, no one will even know because someone's living on an 80 acre property and it doesn't create problems for people other than them. So like, just to give one example, our contexts, uh, make us have very different needs and expectations of what is reasonable government regulation um, and what is a reasonable level of interaction between the government and individual citizens in that context. Well, that might be a good segue to your work at the Public Policy Lab. 
Uh, I mean, are you exploring at that sort of broad, like as I'm saying, almost narrative level, uh, different ways of framing policy, or do you get more into uh, policy design? Is there another aspect to it? Yeah, I mean, so we use a a human-centered methodology in our work. So fundamentally, when we begin to engage with a government partner about some project, we ask, who are all of the human beings who are involved in the creation and delivery of whatever this this policy-enabled thing is? And that means, of course, the people inside of, you know, directing or running the program who are often our partners and also the members of the public who are using or experiencing the public service, which is being enabled, but also everybody in the middle, the frontline staff who are the kind of point of interaction between the public and the service, the operational folks who are completely invisible, really, to the public, who are actually operationalizing the program. Um, collecting stories, and we we try to do this in, you know, uh, we are inspired by the methods of ethnographers. We try to go to where people are and hang out there with them and see what is their life experience and what is happening when this policy is being delivered to people or what is the mechanisms that people are using in their work to actually make this thing happen. Um, when we do that, we end up collecting all these stories from different points in a system. And the work of the designer in that context is to do synthesis of all of those different, sometimes conflicting points of view and say, what do all of these people share? Mm -hmm. What is their shared need from this system? Because if we can identify that, then that becomes a site for design. That becomes what we design to is the shared requirement that everybody holds from the policy system. Well, that's interesting because the, you know, that maybe there's some commonality in, in the public sector setting that you're describing in, in large enterprises that a lot of designers work right. in these days, but there are so many streams, channels, data, evidence, uh, stakeholders to synthesize. Right. And, um, do you find that that is maybe the, the biggest challenge for designers in this space? Uh, are they equipped to do that type of synthesis? I think that, um, I think in order to be equipped, you actually have to have some theory of how you're making a determination about where, what design concepts or even what space inside of a conceptual universe is the one which is most worth pursuing. So we often talk about this, and I think, you know, other designers in commercial contexts also imagine this as well, which is what's this kind of uh, axis of um, value versus feasibility? Like a lot of times, if you're looking at some policy-enabled context, you can say, oh, wow, if we could do thing X, in this system, it would be so it would be transformative for everybody who's using or delivering this service. But wow, that'll take five or 15 years mm -hmm. and cost billions of dollars if that were to occur. That may not actually be possible. Then there's this thing we could do over here. We could just like make this one form 
a little bit more attractive. Make the space to write in your email long enough that you can actually fit your email into the box. You know, like we can do some, some better graphic design of this form. And that, you know, super easy. You know, actually, I, I take that back. Not even always relatively, super easy. <laughs> relatively easy, but relatively low impact in terms of actually transforming the way that the service functions. So I think part of that assessment after the collecting of all of those divergent stories, looking as design researchers do for edge cases, looking for points of divergence, looking for the people who are at the extremes so that you get the broadest possible range of stories. Then it's about saying, okay, when we take all of this, this human data and look at it, what's the stuff in there that both has the potential to deliver the most value value while being within the zone of feasibility? Mm -hmm. They talk about with planets, this idea of the Goldilocks zone, that like if an if a planet outside of our solar system is too close to that foreign sun, it'll burn up. But if it's too far, it'll be too cold for life to emerge. So the, they're looking for the, Goldi, the, the planets in the Goldilocks zone. And in some ways, we're looking for the projects in the Goldilocks zone. Like, what are the projects that are in that sweet spot of value and viability? Well, about that, that, um, that viability challenge, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, just having the sustainability of, of a project to, to weather the changes that are inevitable and often involve stakeholders, whether they be um, sea level people driven by uh, quarterly earnings reports or uh, in the, the, the elected officials who are potentially running for re-election in the moment they're, they've been elected. Uh, they've got two years to go, perhaps, and they're already thinking about the next election. And they, um, uh, you know, they're, I don't know that there are any more Robert Moseses to contend with who, who ultimately can make sure, for better or for worse, that things get done over a long period of time, regardless of uh, the vagaries of electoral politics. Is that that sort of challenge of sustaining projects over the long term something that like like your lab looks at or people in the se in this setting looking at in a general way there's this great quote actually by by the sociologist max weber uh which i don't know how to say in the original german but in it. english it's uh politics is this is a strong and slow boring of hard boards so this idea that what happens in the political space is by its very nature systemic. It's about the alteration or manipulation of society's relationship with itself. So it moves at a slow speed. This is also why government is often considered to be risk averse because like governance is a slow business. Um, so politicians may well be making kind of political shifts with the wind, but in terms of actually how, how public services get delivered, that often is a, is a slow system. Mm -hmm. So when you're working inside of a slow system, 
you you know that any meaningful change is going to take not weeks or months, but years to roll out. So the way that our team deals with that is we know that we won't see the real implementation of our design products. We will, we will design a thing, but we have to design it in deep collaboration with our government partners because then we have to leave. Mm-hmm. They can't, they're not going to keep us around for five years. The consultant's still on Right. So we have to design the thing with them so tightly that they they internalize it and understand it as we in, have internalized it and understand and understand it. And then when and they think deeply with us about how they are going to implement it. So that when we go, it's not like we've been these consultants who have parachuted in and handed them a thing and then we leave. Rather, they have been co-creators of these solutions, which they and almost if we're successful, we melt away. And as, it was as if we were never there. It was their creation. Well, to come full circle, uh, I, I imagine you also have to arm them with optimism. Um, I have a question for you. Uh, sure. uh, talking about uh, things that move slowly and uh, like systematic uh, systemic change. Is there a, a, a Stuart brand pace layer uh, diagram pinned up somewhere mm. in your office? Sure. <laughs> Um, there's not one pinned in the office, but there has been one drawn on our whiteboards. Uh, it, so yes, I, I know it's. And I, I always yeah. go ahead. I was just gonna say I always tell my I, I, I like to tell my students at Columbia um, the story about the pace layers and and have them think about how that even applies to product design. And the great famous example is that like women's blouses, inexpensive women's blouses turnover every week at Zara and mm-hmm. Mango. There's a new set of them. But toilets, they change in their design almost never because no one can really talk about what a toilet does or what a toilet is for. And also the people who purchase toilets are often not the people who use toilets. Developers mm. purchase toilets and install them in homes or apartments. So you have like different kinds of market pressures, even within a design space, push different sorts of products to have different design cycles. There's a great book by um, Harvey Mollich at NYU, an NYU sociologist who, who talks about this, who talks about how it is that those kind of pace layers affect cycles of design. Well, um, I'll during the break, I'll have to describe to you the uh, wonders of the Toto Washlet, but um, <laughs> uh, it's not a Rosenfeld. But not adopted worldwide. That's, That's right. the thing. Well, it's not a Rosenfeld review podcast if we don't get to pace layering some at some point. <laughs> and uh, uh, in fact, we got to it before the break with a, a, a healthy dollop of uh, Max Weber. That's a pretty good start. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. We're talking with Chelsea Malden of the Public Policy Lab. And when we come back, we're going to talk about money. See you in a moment. Hey, it's Lou. Surprise, surprise. And I'm here to let you know that the next Rosenfeld Media book is coming out on November 15th. But you can buy it right now. You can pre-order it at over 15% off. What's the book? Deliberate Intervention Using Policy and Design 
to blunt the harms of new technology, written by Alex Schmidt, a person who's got both great writing credentials uh, and is a designer now working in the public sector at the uh, Federal Reserve Bank uh, right here in New York City. It's a book on an intersection that's really important. Designers really have to understand policy as a constraint, uh, sometimes a good constraint, but always a challenging constraint. And what we can do with that constraint, whether it's understanding policy well and how it gets created, understanding tight policy constraints, looser ones, uh, understanding how we can even work our way upstream to become part of the process of designing policies and all together with the goal of reducing the harms that technologies uh, are unleashing on the world. So I hope you'll have a look. Policy, design, fascinating intersection, excellent writer Alex Schmidt, and the book, Deliberate Intervention Using Policy and Design to Blunt the Harms of New Technology. It's a two-waves book, a Rosenfeld Media imprint, and you can get it, pre-order it now for 15% off at rosenfeldmedia.com. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review, talking with Chelsea Malden of the Public Policy Lab, also a speaker at the upcoming uh, Civic Design Conference produced by Rosenfeld Media, taking place virtually November 16th through 18th. We hope you'll be there, partly to learn from Chelsea about the money. In fact, the topic of her talk, the title of her talk is Let's Talk About Money. Well, let's talk about money, Chelsea. <laughs> is this the money coming in, the money going out? It's all the money. And I have to tell you, my my team at the Public Policy Lab has actually made a little Slack emoji of my head with a little dollar sign coming out of it. Because it's oh, a little, little to... running joke about me always wanting to talk about the money. Um, but even when one is running a not-for-profit organization, as I do, one's life still involves conversations and questions about money. And uh, those questions are something like this. Um, how, so we run a not-for-profit. Our not-for-profit organization doesn't rely primarily on donations. It's not like the organizations that send you a flyer and say, send us $20. Rather, we primarily go to large philanthropies and ask for, for grants to fund our work. Or we actually in, we have contracts with government agencies who provide us with revenue in exchange for us providing them with research and design and strategic advice. Um, so one big question is, how much should our engagement in a project cost? How do we decide whether X amount of work carried out by X amount of people over X amount of time, how much should that cost? This is in fact the question of any professional services organization, whether for-profit or not-for-profit. So that's a big question. And then a related question is how much should we get paid? Mm -hmm. How much should everyone on the team receive? Our organization is sort of unusual in that uh, we have highly skilled, highly trained and educated people doing our work. Um, people who, if they went to private sector roles, could certainly make more money, but who are interested in doing public sector work. So how do we compensate them? Do we compensate them like the highly trained professionals they are, or do we compensate them as 
uh, people who are working in a public interest, not-for-profit organization or something in the middle. Um, and then finally, how do we make all those decisions based on our values? We're an, a public interest organization. So our, our mission is explicitly not to generate profit. Our mission is to generate positive value in the world. So how do we make our decisions about money reflect the fact that we're trying to make positive value in the world? That means perhaps taking projects even when they're not going to be super profitable. It means paying people really well so that they have a good quality of life. But also, if you pay people super well and take some projects that are not profitable, you'll go out of business. Mm -hmm. You will cease to have enough revenue to continue to operate the organization, which is supposed to be that engine of change. Feels to me like in as much as there has, there's been, a, you know, there's a growing civic design community, but it didn't feel to me like I heard many people actually talking about the fundamental economics of how a civic design consultancy or a civic design arrangement between a government partner and a outside of government partner, I didn't hear anyone talking about that. But that is in fact what drives the viability of the work. So, so I, the reason I proposed this talk was because I thought let's let's start having a conversation about the way that money either enables or smothers the ability to do good work in this space. I like that you went at it from both directions there. Do, do you, have you gotten as far as to, to put together um, a framework that... Indeed. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. So, so we, have, we have something that we call the PLORG mod. It's the PPL organizational model. And it's a, uh, a three-piece a three piece thing, uh, each piece of which interacts with each other piece. One of which is a, a pay scale, which is transparent. Everybody in our organization knows how much everybody else in our organization makes and why. It's based on a set of objective criteria so that we can figure out how to pay people and how to give people raises. Um, additionally, we have a uh, project execution model, which is based on an agile software development framework, um, which allows us to scope out projects based on standard sprints and releases in order to conduct the work over a given period of time. And then we have a costing model that allows us to essentially say, okay, depending on the size of the team who's going to work on this project and the duration of the project and its level of intensity, that tells us how much a project needs to generate in terms of revenue for it to be affordable for us to execute it. Um, and that also is transparently available to every member of our team. Um, we also make our internal books, our internal book bookkeeping is completely available to every member of our team mm. so that everybody on the team knows how much a project is bringing in, how much time we're dedicating to it, how their billable hours relate to the profitability of the revenue generation of that project, um, all of that. That's amazing. So um, would it be fair to say that someone attending the Civic Design Conference in November uh, could uh, come away from it with a reasonably a good model or framework to do the same work with their own services and how they are compensating their own people, obviously, as a, as a start. I, that is my hope. And I think mainly what I also want people to be aware of is that it's not 
it's not just about like, like having some spreadsheet that does this. It's actually about a pretty deep investigation and an ongoing investigation with your team about how you are using money in the organization to both enable good work and create the maximum of freedom and satisfaction for everybody who works there. Like everyone could make more money, but that would mean we would need to take on more projects. Mm -hmm. If we take on more projects, that means more labor. That means probably less time off. You know, there are, there are always trade-offs working as we do in the context of capitalism where there is an hour of someone's time and there is a dollar of someone's revenue that's going to get generated. So really being able to have those conversations. And I, I feel like it's particularly important that we have it with our, with our junior staff, with our folks who are in their twenties, who are just starting out in their professional careers. I feel like when I was uh, a, a young professional, uh, no one explained any of that to me. I didn't understand the relationship between what I was getting paid and the work that the corporation I worked for did. Um, and I think I would have, it would have been empowering if I had understood that. And I think it's so important in this particular setting where values are a big reason that people are here in the first place. And it you can't just peg it to the private sector in terms of, What's pay, what pay, what people are being paid, what clients are being charged, but also it's a different value system altogether. Right. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, sure. You are very generous because I know that um, at the end, well, you know that at the end of our Rosenfeld Media, your Rosenfeld Review podcast, we always have a gift for our <laughs> listeners from our guests. But in this case, Chelsea's got two for us <laughs> because uh, A, she's really generous. It's holiday season's upon us. And uh, maybe I'm just indecisive, Lou. That's, and maybe she's just indecisive. Okay. Well, what do you got for us, Chelsea? <laughs> well, you asked for a gift. Um, and one immediately in, in the prompt was, what's something that, that is valuable for you that you don't know that if everybody knows about it? Um, so one thing that I have to say I use continuously in my own life leading this organization is the idea of the Eisenhower matrix, which uh, is a is a sort of task uh, sorting and effort uh, triaging uh, tool, supposedly um, invented by Ike himself, or at least popularized by, by Eisenhower, uh, which is about thinking about everything you have to do in terms of its relative urgency and its relative importance. And things that are both urgent and important are what you should always do first. So you have that two by two. Exactly. Got exactly. It. The, the danger is that things that are urgent, but actually not that important, are what tend to then swarm your to-do list. Mm -hmm. and you spend a lot of time knocking off tasks that feel time sensitive, but actually aren't all that meaningful for whatever effort you're trying to run, whether that's World War II or a small design organization. Um, but really what Eisenhower said is the stuff in the quadrant, which is important, but not urgent, that is the entire strategic future of whatever it is that you are working on. And that is the space that you must jealously guard and attempt to always hold your time for, is for the stuff which is 
deeply important to achieving what it is you want to achieve, but that doesn't have an immediate deadline attached to it. Because it's so easy to push it off. So where the future lives. You're going to take us from the, the beaches of Normandy <laughs> now to a completely different idea for a gift. Indeed. Um, and this was actually a, a gift that was given to me. So this is a gift. I'm re-gifting this gift. Um, I took uh, a sabbatical last summer. And before I took that sabbatical, I asked friends and colleagues, what should I do on my sabbatical? What, what do you recommend for me um, to refresh and rejuvenate my brain? And one of my uh, government partners said, you should set aside some time to read poetry. You should let poetry um, in the way that it is uh, uh, not always as linear as prose or certainly nonfiction reporting, let that change your brain. And so I signed up for a daily newsletter from the Poetry Foundation, poetry.org, and they sent me a poem every day. And many times I don't like the poem. And I like, ah, this is not a poem for me. But every so often, every couple of weeks, there's a poem that provides some real mind expansion. And that, I think, is a, a valuable function in the lives of busy people who are focused on getting things done. Um, having something in your life that regularly reminds you to look at the world through different eyes. Well, Chelsea, you're a gift that keeps giving because you've all obviously <laughs> given us a lot here today. And I'm going to sign up for that uh, newsletter from poetry.org. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank really. you, Luke. And it's My pleasure. It's always great talking with you. Uh, Chelsea Malden, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Public Policy Lab here in wonderful Brooklyn, New York, USA, and speaker at the upcoming Civic Design Conference taking place virtually November 16th through 18th. Be there, learn from Chelsea, and uh, keep optimistic. Thanks, folks. And thanks again, Chelsea. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen, and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com. <laughs>